Let's find out how someone writes a great piece of classical music. And who better to tell that story than Ken Fuchs, professor of composition in UConn's music department, who does have a Grammy Award, is recorded at Abbey Road Studios with the London Symphony Orchestra. Oh, he's got the big-time resume here today. Ken, welcome back. I guess we should start things off by telling the story of the last time that you were here. It was right after you won the Grammy Award in 2018. And like this time, like that time, this time, you didn't bring the Grammy to show me? Well, Wayne, it was early when I got up this morning, for starters, and the thing weighs six pounds. But I'm glad to be back and be with you this morning and all our friends out there. Well, if you go to our website, wili.com, click on the homepage and look at the Wayno guest, you will see a picture of Ken from that day. The closest I got to actually seeing a Grammy in person was he took a picture of it, and I took a picture of him holding his phone that has the picture of the Grammy. So... Uh, that's that's the warm fuzzies for me. What's new in the Ken Fuchs world? You're writing more stuff, aren't you? I sure am. I have a brand new album that just came out. It's called Cloud Slant, and it's recorded with the Sinfonia of London, conducted by John Wilson. A new adventure for me. Sinfonia of London is a virtuoso orchestra. John's a brilliant interpreter of American music. Even though he's a fabulous British conductor, he really gets the American sound. And um, the album on Shondos Records has had a great rollout. I just found out this morning that we uh, have an editor's choice in the October issue of Gramophone Magazine um, and a five-star review. It just really doesn't get any better than that. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. And by the way, is, is Symphonia kind of a highbrow way of saying symphony? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like the London Symphony Orchestra, but Symphonia is also... Um, a common term in describing uh, a symphony orchestra and it's made up of 90 virtuoso players and they just can play anything at sight and play it beautifully I was over there um, at the top of August uh, recording volume 2 with them which will be released next June so um, we have a series going When did you first get into classical music? First as a listener, and then later as a composer. Got very serious about it when I was in high school. Um, like many people in this country, I had a band director in high school who was extremely supportive and encouraged me to write music. And the most important thing that Bentley Shellhammer ever said to me was, I will play everything you write. And he did. And that's how I learned how to write music for large ensemble, for band, and then uh, later orchestra when I went to college. Now, when you were in the band, what instrument or plural instruments were you playing? Flute was my principal instrument, but I also played piccolo, which is a companion instrument uh, to flute. But I also studied voice for many years and piano. I started composing when I was a junior in high school. So by the time I got to undergraduate school at the University of Miami, I had written several pieces and I was really on my way thanks to the support that I had in high school. Now, one thing that I found really interesting about this new album called Cloud Slamp was the inspiration you got from it. It was not from another composer. It was from an abstract expressionist painter. Do yes. tell. <laughs> the wonderful painter, Helen Frankenthaler, a very significant American painter, emerged in the 1950s and um, took the, the, 
the example of the abstract expressionist artists in the 40s, Jackson Pollock being the most famous, his famous drip paintings. And um, Helen created her own abstract style, uh, but using color in a way that um, the first generation of the abstract artists did not. Very beautiful washes of, of color, stained canvases in, in, in gorgeous pastel colors. And the canvases themselves are, are huge eight, nine, ten feet in either direction. And um, I met Helen when I was a grad student at Juilliard in the early 1980s, and I was still searching to find my own voice as a composer, to to find a way into writing the kind of classical music that I wanted to write. And the kind of classical music I wanted to write was tuneful, emotionally direct, uh, and at that time in American musical composition, a lot of composers were still not writing that way. They were writing, um, you know, what some people might call ugly modern music. Modern music isn't ugly, but it is important that, at least to me, uh, that you write music that people want to listen to. And I hope maybe hum a tune when they, after they hear it. Does this ugly modern music thing mean as opposed to, for example... The, the classics, the masters, the Bach, the Beethoven, the Brahms. Yeah, I mean, we have an enormous wealth of incredible um, classical music literature in, in Western music, starting, yes, uh, well, not starting with, but notably, uh, we'll mention Bach and Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and Schumann and Schubert and Brahms and so many others. Dvorak, whose, Dvorak. Birthday, whose birthday is today. Who knew? Well, isn't that amazing? I'm so glad, so glad to be here on Dvorak's birthday because I, I love his music. But um, in the early part of the 20th century and certainly into the war, the period of the Second World War and after, um, music took a different, went in a different direction stylistically. Uh, and there were developments in, in ways of composing um, music that were not based in tonality, but um, the pieces were based in what we would call non-tonal music or atonal music. And um, that's a significant development. And I'm uh, only being facetious when I call it ugly modern music. There are some absolutely fabulous masterworks written in this style, but it's, it's a very cerebral style of music that um, had a significant impact and held sway for uh, at least a generation right after the war, uh, where composers wrote in this style rather than in um, the tuneful, more direct style of American composers that we know and love, such as George Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue, Concerto in F, Aaron Copland, Fanfare for the Common Man, his incredibly beautiful ballet, Appalachian Spring, Leonard Bernstein, West Side Story. So uh, the music didn't sound like that, but the kind, the music that I just mentioned and the composers I just mentioned, Copland and Bernstein and a number of other American symphonists, that was the kind of music I wanted to write. So that is why, um, fortunately, I was admitted to Juilliard. But I wanted to go to Juilliard because several of the teachers there were uh, significant American symphonists. And I had the, the privilege of, of studying with them. And um, Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein came to Juilliard in 1984 to present uh, a semester-long seminar to 12 doctoral students, and I was one of the lucky 12 to study with Bernstein for a semester. Absolutely unforgettable. Ken, you talked about the inspiration of the abstract expressionist painter Helen Frankenthaler. Frankenthaler, yes. Well, what intrigues me is that you actually write classical music while you have one of her paintings 
in front of you. A yes. painting inspires classical music. How does that work? Well, um, Helen's paintings, if our listeners uh, go to the internet right now and type in the name Helen Frankenthaler, uh, they will see many, many beautiful colorful paintings that are quite emblematic in terms of the picture of of the painting and you know when when i when i first looked at helen's um paintings and i'm holding up the album cover right now to cloud to cloudsland which i'm showing you on the cover uh is the painting um called cloudsland which inspired this huge 19 minute three movement orchestral work but um it was Helen's method of uh, pouring the paint on the canvas and uh, moving it around with not not paintbrushes, but sometimes sponges and rakes and so forth. But she, it, it's it's the picture itself that inspired me, that the, the state of feeling that um, Helen expressed in her paintings. And uh, it was really her method and more to the point, her free will and creative attitude about um, creating her work that really made a huge impression on me. Great story. Now, let's play a portion of the first cut mm -hmm. from this Cloud Slant CD that you're holding right now. Yeah. You want to give a little setup and sure. what's the story behind cut one? Okay. Well, Cloud Slant is, um, the subtitle is, it's a concerto for orchestra, meaning that rather than being a concerto for one player, such as a pianist or a violinist, uh, this is a concerto for all of the sections of the orchestra, the woodwinds, the brass, the strings, the percussion. And I was so taken by Helen's picture that I'm looking at right now, and I hope... Our friends will go online and type in Helen Frankenthaler Cloud Slant. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But um, I took three paintings that she had um, had created in the mid-60s. Um, the first one is called Blue Fall, and that's the movement that we're going to listen to. That's the first movement. But the three movements of the work taken together, the title, the titles are Blue Fall, Flood, and the last movement is called Cloud Slant. And here's a little sort of sample of Cloud Slant. And, and this is Blue Fall Movement 1. From Kenneth Fuchs. Now, Ken, you wrote that, and it goes on for five more minutes, but when the orchestra, the Symphonia of London, is playing that, what are you doing? Just sitting there enjoying your work? Uh, well, I have a really big smile on my face. 
<laughs> that movement that we just, a little bit of the first movement of Cloud Slant, the first movement is called Blue Fall. And um, that's one of Helen's gorgeous paintings. And the picture itself, if our listeners look online, is actually a, a huge blue thrust downward into a pool of yellow gold paint. And I just loved the energy of that picture. Huge, eight feet tall. And to see it in person uh, is so inspiring. But uh, when I'm composing these pieces uh, after Helen's paintings, yes, I, you know, I don't have the paintings. I wish I did. But, but I do have a, a number of Helen's catalogs that I've collected over the last 40 years. I have many, many uh, art books of, of her work. And uh, so when I'm writing, uh, yeah, I have the book open. And um, it's sort of in the corner talking to me, but I'm not always looking at it every once in a while just to get a sense of the shape of, of the painting and what she was doing to create it. And so I'm trying to do that in musical sound. Not so much paint in musical sound what the picture looks like, but more to use the method. Again, the freewheeling approach to um, creating form and gesture. I'm intrigued by the whole concept of how you write a classical piece. This is not like Lennon McCartney sitting down and playing off one and playing off the other. When someone writes the lyrics, someone writes the music. This is not like Holland Dozier, Holland and Motown. You are composing for how many people are in the London Symphonia, the Symphonia of London? Are you talking like 50, 100? 90 players. Right. So are Woodwinds, you, brass, percussion, string. And are you writing 90 pieces of music mm. for all 90 musicians? How do I'm, you do that? I'm starting first with a pencil and a piece of blank manuscript paper at the piano, and I am making little sketches, melodic lines and harmonic ideas, you know, and I'm writing down flutes, violins, that what I'm hearing in my head. And this, this process of sketching goes on for maybe four or five weeks. So by the end of the sketching, I have maybe 20 or 25 pages of sketches, more or less in sequential order as I, as I heard the music and, and started sketching musical ideas and harmonic ideas. And there always comes a point where I have enough, um, sketched music that I go to the computer. Like most composers, I work in music notation software in the computer, and I create the musical score uh, in notation software on the computer, and I start composing directly into the score on the computer from the sketches. I don't make a piano version first or anything like that. I start sketch. I start writing the music from the sketches, and it's always because I'm hearing it... Um, in my head, and yeah, I'm hearing a symphony orchestra playing in my head. 24-7. 20, well, <laughs> almost 24-7. Um, and I, by the way, I love Holland Dozier Holland. I always loved that sound growing up in the 60s. Classical composers don't make that kind of money. <laughs> but it sure was an inspiration. Some of the greatest songs that were ever written. Classical. And Burt Backrack. You enjoyed hearing Classical Gas by Mason Williams. Tell me a story about that song in your life. Well, when I was growing up in the 60s, I, I really loved pop music. And, you know, during the break, when we were talking about our favorite songwriters, Laura Nero and, and Diane Warren, Burt Backrack, and, and Holland Dozier Hollands. I mean, Holland Dozier Holland, I mean, these are the, those songs are the soundtracks of our, our lives. And... Um, I had so many of these songs on 45s. Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoltz. Oh, absolutely. And um, I wore classical gas. I wore it out. 
<laughs> I really did. It's such a great number. And, uh, you know, working now with the Sinfonia of London and John Wilson is a classical gas of my own making. It's it's a thrill. So I'm actually holding on to your brand new CD right now. Mm. I can... I'm a published author. And I can tell you, there's not many times in my life that it's been a more special moment than the day that, even though I'd seen the book, even though I'd seen the drafts, the day that the actual book was sent to me in the mail, and I opened it up and held on to it. Now, you've won a Grammy Award already, but when you get this CD for the first time, you compose this classical CD, is that a, a special moment in your life? It sure is, and, and, and you know what that feels like when your book arrives, books, copies of your book arrives in a box, and uh, you take it out, and it represents so much work. It's, of course, it's a thrill to open that box and, and hold the dick, disc or the book in your hand. But, uh, you know, in the, in the case of this album, uh, I started talking with John Wilson, the brilliant conductor of the Sinfonia of London, in October of 2019 about doing an album with him and his newly established orchestra. And uh, so here we are, four years later, the album is out. Um, you know, I had to write all the music. And, and as I always tell my students at UConn, it doesn't end when you put the last note of music on the paper, then comes a recording, performances, publishing, all the business side of, of being a composer that you absolutely have to do. And in the case of this album, four years um, from start to finish, uh, I had to raise all the money to, to record it. And that, I think the out, the budget for this album was $123,000. And I've had such great support from, uh, so many offices at the university, the office of, uh, the vice president for research and, and our wonderful provost Andaleva and Radanka Merrick, the, the brilliant new president of UConn and uh, the dean of the School of Fine Arts, Ellen Frogley. These are all people who, you know, they want to help faculty members achieve their, their dreams. And I've certainly had that kind of support from uh, my colleagues at UConn and, um, you know, other donors who have, who have stayed with me over 20 years. I've, I, this is my sixth orchestral album. I've done six albums over 20 years, and I'm working on the seventh with the Sinfonia now. You mentioned the students. So mm -hmm. does this CD become part of the lesson plan in your classes at UConn? I, you know, I, this, we just finished our second week of classes and, uh, because the album is just out, of course, I'm quite proud of it. And I, and I, and I want to share it with my students and in my classes in orchestration and in composition. Um, yeah, I've, I've played one or two of the tracks, brought the scores in, discussed the music. And uh, just yesterday we finished uh, with a brilliant videographer in London, uh, a video trailer for um, Pacific Visions, one of the tracks on uh, the album. And, and why did we do that? Well, it's a, you know, it's a high impact, high energy, two minute uh, video trailer uh, for for that piece with footage from the recording session and uh, interviews with with me and John Wilson together. But the point, Wayne, uh, you know, as we've talked about here in this studio before, uh, we're now in the path toward creating a Grammy Award campaign, um, which will take place throughout the fall. And, um, you know, the first round ballot from the Recording Academy will be issued in... Um, 
October. And, you know, I wrote recently in, uh, in an article that was published at UConn Today about that process. Um, you know, if you want to get serious about, you know, competing in, in the awards circuit, um, you, you have to campaign. It's, it's, it's a political campaign. You simply cannot release an album, put it out there, uh, have the record label submit it uh, to the Recording Academy and hope that somebody will vote for it. Uh, you, you, you know, it just, that doesn't work. You, you listen to actors and actresses around Academy Wartime. They talk about their award campaign. And I, you know, I am working very closely with the PR to, um, people at Shondos Records uh, who released this album. And uh, I also work with a wonderful firm in Los Angeles, uh, White Bear PR. And believe it or not, the, the only thing they specialize in is awards campaigns for composers. That's it. That's what they do. And this is how you create a campaign for a big award like the Grammy. Is this radio show part of your uh, promotional campaign? Well, it's, yeah, damn Promotes right. CD. I don't know about you know, the Grammy voters are listening or not, but you know what? It'll be on the podcast. Well, look look, look for up. the album on, on the first round ballot on when it's released on October 11th. Now, here's what but, I want to know. Here. Yeah. You talked about Pacific Visions. We're going to hear a sample of that coming up in a couple of minutes here. But there's a video for that particular piece. I don't think they're called songs anymore in classical uh when does the video for pacific visions break on mtv uh well i hope i hope soon but um in in about a week our listeners will be able to go to kennethfuchs.com and watch the video is there a classical music video uh, channel? They, you know, I wish there maybe, were. Maybe Charter can replace that <laughs> with, with the ESPN stuff that's not playing anymore and put a classical music video channel on. Well, thanks to people, <laughs> broadcasters like you, programmers like you who want to support people like me, that's why I'm here. And, you know, um, Sirius XM, uh, Channel 76... At Sirius XM is called Symphony Hall, and um, they actually featured the album two weeks ago, uh, and they play tracks from it every single day. And I actually hosted, just like you, Wayne, I hosted my own program called Living American, and it was an hour and a half feature about the album. And I sat behind the mic just like you're doing now. You're my competition? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> what was that Nobody like? could compete with you. How many years did you tell me? 53 on air? 153. <laughs> Ken... What's it like? We talked about what it's like to hold that CD in your hand for the Mm. first time. What about, even though you knew this was coming, you knew the CD was coming too, but when you hear your selection, your piece on Sirius XM for the first time, that's got to be a seminal moment. Absolute thrill. And you know what is also a thrill, as I'm sure it happens to you when people read your books? Uh, You know, I get messages, text messages, Facebook messages from people who say, I just heard... Cloud Slant on Sirius XM, and I want to tell you how much I love the piece. I mean, something like that. That means so much when people take time to write. Well, let's hear this Pacific Visions piece. String orchestra. Because after all, I am a Pacific guy, fifth generation Californian I am. You want to give a little setup for this yeah, particular piece? Well, the piece was commissioned by a wonderful um, orchestra, Musique sur le Mer, in uh, Seal Beach in California. And uh, Marcy Sudak is the brilliant conductor there. And um, she uh, was doing a concert of new American works at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And um, she wanted a new work for me. And uh, it was right at the time that the Aquarium opened their new wing called Pacific Visions. Would you write a work for our string orchestra 
titled Pacific Visions to celebrate the energy, the vision of, of the Aquarium of the Pacific and, and uh, how important it is to sustain our global oceans. That's how the piece started. That's part of Pacific Visions from Kenneth Fuchs, his brand new CD called Cloud Slant, which is available to the general public when and where, Ken. The album was released on July 14th, and Shandos Records, which is a major classical music label based in the UK, um, our listeners, if they want to have physical copy of the, the disc the album they can buy a, a compact disc but it's also available on all music service sites all downloading and streaming sites name name anyone and you'll find the album there cloudsland is your 2018 grammy award still sitting on top of the uh, fireplace mantle there it, or is, it is it's, it it's right in where i always dream to have a grammy the centerpiece of the mantle of my <laughs> fireplace the i told you earlier i would have brought it to you this morning but it weighs six pounds six pounds that's nothing that's not 60 pounds you know well maybe maybe next time i put on white gloves when i touch it you know one of the memories that i have of the slew of morning show guests i've had over the years has been the great wally lamb and one thing he told me that really resonated with me not just in general but also as i wrote my book on yukon basketball was the tip he has for young writers is rewrite 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 what about for a composer of classical music do you find yourself in that same mode rewrite 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 in other words make it better 
I when I finish a piece, it's it's usually finished, and and I say that only because I write very carefully. Uh, I'm you, some people might say I'm a slow writer, but I work very carefully. So when the piece is done, I think it's done. I, I, I usually don't go, do, I usually do not go back and rewrite. However, I will say that, um, you know, when you hear the first performance, right, symphony orchestra performance, there may, there are things I'll think, oh, I need to adjust that, this or that, but not big wholesale rewrites. And in the case of this album, uh, I wrote Cloud Slant specifically for the virtuosity of the Sinfonia of London. And um, the first time I heard it was in the recording studio. So you've really got to have your wits about you when you walk into a recording studio with a 19-minute piece for Full Symphony Orchestra and record it at never having heard it before in any performance or anything. you really got to know what you're doing. Have you had occasions where it got to that point and then you hear it and you go, this isn't working. Uh, not to the point where it's not working, but on the spot. Uh, there were a couple times with John, John Wilson, um, in the studio working with him and the Sinfonia. It's, John, we need to change. Uh, we need to adjust the sound for the strings there. We need to have them play it this way rather than that way. But it's not really rewriting the music, like cutting music or adding music at the at time. You mentioned John Wilson. Got a mm-hmm. picture of him here in your mm-hmm. CD liner notes here. And with the John Wilson Orchestra, Wilson restored some of the lost scores from The Wizard of Oz and American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. Yes. Who knew? There's lost scores for those? What, what don't we know well, about? Well, this, this is the tragedy of, um, of, of this era in, in the great film musicals, the great MGM film musicals. When MGM was sold finally um, in 1969, as you know, a lot of the studios crashed uh, in the late 60s. But when MGM was sold, the the enormous library of music, musical scores, the parts that the players play from, uh, when, when you know, the suits uh, decided to sell the studio, they they, uh, learned that uh, all of that music, just the paper itself, with all the dots on it, was a taxable asset. So they took the entire library and dumped it in a landfill. And so all of that music was, the printed music, was um, was lost. And so what John Wilson uh, did w- during his tenure with the John Wilson Orchestra, of course, which he founded, um, John is a master. He has a, a genius, um, intuitive sense of American vernacular. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the, great, the music of the great film scores. And uh, so John, um, with some of those scores, yeah, he told me, um, he when he restored the the music, meaning put it back on music paper so that they could record it with the orchestra, if he had a piano score, like a conductor score, a short score is often called in the business, if he had that, that was the best thing because he could then, you know, realize the orchestral sound from uh, hearing a recording. But he often didn't have the score. Um, he had maybe one violin part and a very scratchy recording. And uh, he, you know, he, in interviews, he said sometimes an afternoon would go by and he um, would notate maybe four or five seconds of music. And that's what it was, putting wow. it back together bar by bar, sometimes only with a scratchy, scratchy recording. Well, at least they saved if I only had a brain. <laughs> Ken, I'm really intrigued by this 
practice that you have of writing to some of the great composers who you have a true appreciation for. What's the inspiration behind your writing to them, and do any of them respond to your letters, your fan mail? Well, Wayne, you know, I think we all need mentors, and when I was growing up, an aspiring composer in high school, and and certainly as an undergraduate student at the University of Miami, and you know, a grad student at Juilliard, um, you know, there are a group of composers. We'll limit it to composers for a moment, <clears throat> whose music really inspired me. And we're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, the great American symphonists, such as Aaron Copland. He was my hero. He was a hero to so many young composers uh, when I was growing up, and. Um, I studied his music very seriously, and um, I mean, like everything that he wrote, and I, I bought LPs and got the scores, and I was so moved by the music and wanted to be like him. <clears throat> the, the example he set through, uh, not only writing iconic classical American music, but recording his music with the London Symphony Orchestra, which I eventually got to do with my own music. But... Um, I just felt that I needed to reach out to express um, my understanding of his work and, and my gratitude for his work. So, you know, when I, when I wrote to Copeland and other composers such as uh, Stephen Sondheim, iconic American musical theater composer, Leonard Bernstein, it wasn't so much a fan letter like, I love your music, can I have an autographed picture? But in in uh, Sondheim's case, I remember very very clearly, I was a junior, uh, when was it? No, this was in, I was a junior at the University of Miami, and I wrote him um, a four-page, single-spaced, handwritten letter explaining um, what is this his... this typed, or is this, this was is handwritten, handwritten? Handwritten. Wow. Explaining to him what his music meant to me and why I admired it and what I was, what, and what I was learning from it. And, um, I didn't really expect a reply, but I will tell you the day, two weeks later, when this little white envelope appeared in my mailbox with the address on the back of it with no name, I knew who it was from and I couldn't believe my eyes. Even now, as we talk about it, I, I get kind of teary. So yeah, Sondheim replied and uh, Copeland replied. And um, fortunately, when I was uh, in my junior year at the University of Miami in 1977, Copeland actually came to Miami to conduct the Miami Philharmonic in his music. And I wrote to him, you know, a very lengthy letter and uh, said I would really love to meet him when he came to Miami uh, because the orchestra was actually rehearsing on campus as well. So Copeland wrote back and he said, sure, when I come to come to Miami, please come to my rehearsals and we'll arrange a time to get together. And um, this is, you know, my idol. This is the famous Aaron Copeland. So when I met Copeland uh, at Miami, um, I, because I was, you know, like one of the successful student composers back then at the school, I was assigned to uh, accompany Copeland uh, around to various spots in Miami. So there I am in the car with Copeland and, you know, the, somebody else is driving. And uh, Copeland said, well, look, I have time this Sunday uh, I'm staying at the home of the chairman of the board of the orchestra of the Miami Philharmonic. Why don't you come to his home and bring your music? 
And I did. And I, we spent three unforgettable hours together, not only talking about my music, but the opportunity for me to talk to him about his music and ask questions. And, you know, why did you do this? What, you know, why is this here? And, um, it was the start of, uh, you know, as we hear in Casablanca at the end of the movie, it was the start of a beautiful friendship, uh, which lasted from 1977 until his passing in, uh, 1992. But what I learned Wayne from Copeland and Bernstein and Sondheim, all of whom, uh, <clears throat> said to me, when you come to New York to study at Juilliard, uh, give me a call and we'll get together. And I was in Sondheim's townhouse three or four days after Sweeney Todd had opened on Broadway. I mean, these are life changing events, but you know, Wayne, what I learned is that the true greats are never too big to lend a helping hand. And they all did. Supporting me, writing letters of recommendation. These are these are iconic people in classical music who understand how important it is to give back. And that's what I try to do today with my students at UConn and you know other people, other composers who contact me. Great, great story. Ken's album, Cloud Slant, released July 14th by Shandos Records, debuting in the top 10 of two Amazon UK classical bestseller charts. Most wished for at number three and best sellers at number eight. It also has been received numerous four and five star reviews, including one of the London Sunday Times. So from that album, let's hear another selection of your composition. What's the story behind Solitary the Thrush? Well, flute was my principal instrument, as we spoke about earlier. Uh, when I was in high school and college, I took the instrument very seriously. I practiced uh, and performed on flute for a number of years, flute and uh, also piccolo. So I knew that someday I would write um, a flute concerto. And just this morning, Wayne, before I came over to talk with you, I received the incredibly good news from Gramophone Magazine uh, in London that the album is uh, an editor's choice for the month of October in their October issue. And it has a five-star review, and I'm just going to read a little bit, a quote from uh, the five-star review talking about Solitary the Thrush. It reads, Solitary the Thrush is a concerto for C and alto flutes, the two instruments holding a mirror to the title drawn from Walt Whitman's elegiac poem, When Lilacs Last and the Dooryard Bloomed. This is an extraordinary, visionary piece unsettling at times the eerie tone of the alto flute dwelling on the poem's theme of man's mortality.
Solitary, The Thrush from Kenneth Fuchs and his new CD called Cloud Slant. So, you want a Grammy. You have another highly acclaimed CD that is on stores now. What's next? Well, I just got back to London about three weeks ago. I'm working with John Wilson and the Sinfonia of London on Volume 2, which um, Shandos will release in June of 2024 as the follow-up to Volume 1. We have a little bit more music to record uh, in January. One more session, and then the album will be out next June. And good luck on that marketing campaign to get a Grammy. You to explain how tough that is to get it. It's out there, but now you got to get people to hear it and eventually vote for it, right? I hope I'll be able to come back and talk to you about that in a year. We'll see. Let's book the date right now. <laughs> and, maybe this, and maybe this time you can actually bring the Grammy in with you, pal. I promise next time I'll get my little red wagon and put that six-pounder in the wagon and bring it. Promises, promises. Written by one of his favorite composers, Burt Bacharach. The great Burt Kenneth Bacharach. Fuchs, professor of composition in UConn's music department, our guest this morning on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.